give our attention to God's Word this morning as we turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at John chapter 12, 9 through 19, the triumphal entry. John chapter 12, that's on page 898 or 899 of the ESV Pew Bibles. We've concluded our series through the book of Job. We finished that off a few weeks ago, and now we're on Palm Sunday. Of course, next Sunday is Easter. Uh, we have Good Friday this Friday, and then we'll be resuming a, a new sermon series through the book of 1 Corinthians. But for now, we are at the triumphal entry. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, we ask the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that your blessing would accompany the reading and proclamation of your word. We ask that we would be able to see the true meaning of this passage, that we would understand your word to us, and also, Father, that we would respond in faith. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a family, uh, mom, dad, a couple of children, and they were running errands one Saturday, and they were coming home, they were all done, and uh, dad was driving, mom was in the front passenger seat, kids in the back, and, and all of a sudden, mom said, I forgot the vanilla, and I'm going to need it for the recipe later today. Can we stop by on our way home and get some? And so dad said, sure. And they lived in a small town in the Midwest, and they still had one of these corn markets where they knew the owner, and they knew all the employees, and they knew all their customers, and so they pulled into the parking lot, and their son was just old enough to go in and, and run this errand on his own. So they gave him some money, and they said, Mom needs some vanilla. Do you know what she, mean, she needs? And the son nodded head, yeah. Okay, go ahead. We need some vanilla. So he went in the store. A couple minutes later, he came out of the store, and he was carrying this gallon of vanilla ice cream. And Mom and Dad laughed, and he passed it through the car window. He said, okay, we'll take it. We'll eat it. But that's not what we wanted. Um, you're, you're thinking of ice cream. We want vanilla. It comes in a really small container. It's vanilla flavoring. The son goes, okay. So they, he handed him some money and he went into the store. And a few minutes later, the son came out. This time he had a pint of vanilla ice cream. And once again, they laughed and they said, Mom said, I'll get it. And she went into the store. She got the vanilla and came back out. And she turned around in the car and said, this is what we were looking for. It's not ice cream. Have you seen this before? No, the son hadn't seen that before. He never made it chocolate chip cookies, he was a kid. The only thing he had in his mind that he associated with the name vanilla was vanilla ice cream, and so he was confused. But now, after that experience, after they explained what it was, now he knows the difference. There's vanilla ice cream, and there's vanilla extract, and it comes in a little brown bottle. No more confusion. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, on that first Palm Sunday, there was confusion. There was confusion over who Jesus was, what his mission was, how he was going to accomplish that mission. The crowds were confused. In fact, even the disciples had some confusion. The mystery had not been revealed. Not everything was, was, was uh, disclosed by God. There was confusion. So one of the questions we have to ask this morning is, what about now? Is there still confusion over 
who Jesus is and, and what he was doing riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday? Or has there been an event that, that now removes the confusion? And if that's the case, if the confusion has been removed, what, are, what does that mean? What are the implications for the removal of the confusion over, over Jesus and his mission? So we're going to find that out as we unpack this passage and then and apply it. So let's read John 12. We're going to start at verse 9. So this is right before the, the traditional triumphal, triumphal entry passage, but it, it starts with, my heading says, the plot to kill Lazarus. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered the, these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Our passage begins with a murder conspiracy. Not exactly an uplifting note to begin on, but nonetheless, here it is, verse 9. It starts talking about a loud crowd that had learned Jesus was at Bethany, and they, they came out to see him because he had raised Lazarus from the dead. A big sign, a big miracle. Bethany was about two miles east of uh, Jerusalem. And there were many visitors in Jerusalem at this time. Remember, around Passover, the, the population of, of the capital of Jerusalem swelled. Some say, uh, you know, modest estimates, a couple hundred thousand. On the other end, it's maybe even a million or more people. Extra people just descending upon Jerusalem. The, the population swelled. So there were some of those people that were coming and surrounding areas. They went to Bethany because they heard of this Miracle that Jesus performed, and they wanted to hear about it. Now keep in mind, I know we all know this, but just as a reminder, the only way anybody could find out about some event that has already happened is to go and talk to an eyewitness. There is no TV. There is no radio. There are no newspapers. There's no Twitter. There's no internet. There's nothing. The only way you can hear an account or, or hear about what happened is to talk to somebody who was there, eyewitnesses. And so that's what they were doing. They, they'd heard about this and they wanted to find out firsthand. They wanted to go and talk to the people that had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. What happened? T tell us about it. What did he say? What did he do? What, now, now, are you sure he was in there for, for that many days? Or, or what, what, what did he look like when he came out? Was it, was it really disgusting looking? Or was he normal? Or they, they wanted to know. So the crowds that had seen him were witnessing. Or later on it says, um, testifying. Continuing to bear witness. 
But then we get to verses 10 and 11, the reaction of the chief priests and the Jewish leaders. Um, they didn't want the crowds to, to follow Jesus. So they planned to kill both Jesus and Lazarus. How do you put an end to the stories? If the only way to get information about something is to go back and ask the witnesses, and the chief witnesses would be Jesus and Lazarus, they were the ones involved, just kill them. Just take them out. Lazarus is dead? No, 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 Lazarus has been raised? Oh no, I'm sorry, he's he's dead. There's his body. He must have been misinformed. That never really happened. It's pretty easy to cover something up. Nothing to see here. Go back to your business. So the Jewish leaders were planning to conspire and, and, and conspiring to commit a double murder. Verse 11 tells us why. Because, that's the grounds, because on account of him... Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So that phrase, going away, has significance. It it, it means to depart from from someone's allegiance. It it means to leave someone and go to someone else. And this is what the Pharisees were concerned about. They didn't want the crowds abandoning their teaching and their authority and switching and going to someone else, in this case, Jesus. They didn't want that. They wanted to retain their first place position. Verse 12, going out to meet Jesus. So the large crowd, this is now a different crowd. There's there's one crowd in Bethany, now there's another crowd. These are some of the the Passover uh, pilgrims that are in Jerusalem. They'd heard that Jesus is coming, so they now form a crowd and go out to meet Jesus. And this was not uncommon. Uh, in the first century in that culture too, when someone was uh, arriving at a city, someone of importance, someone, uh, a dignitary or someone of royalty, they would often send out a procession, kind of like a welcoming greeting party, and then they would meet them and accompany them into the city so they didn't have to just come in you know, by themselves. They came in with a crowd, fanfare. So that's what they're doing. Verse 13, palm, palm branches. Other gospel accounts include the details of laying down their cloaks. You probably remember that from some of the other gospel accounts. They would take off their garments, their outer garments, and, and lay it down on the ground, and the donkey would ride over it. These are both symbols. Of, palm branches are, are sometimes associated with victory, uh, of, of uh, some kind of triumphal um, event that happened. Uh, cloaks on the ground are often associated with, with doing that for someone of royalty, like a king. And the crowd was crying out, Hosanna, which literally translated means save us or give salvation now. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So this is biblical language and it comes from Psalm 118. Psalm 118, 25, save us, that's the equivalent of Hosanna, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Psalm 18 is a psalm of thanksgiving. It talks about uh, God's steadfast love for his people and his ability to deliver them from death and distress. They were shouting it out to Jesus as a way of ascribing to him the status of Savior, Deliverer, and King. They were shouting this out to Jesus as a way of acknowledging that he is the savior, deliverer, and king that they have been looking for. They've been wanting this for a long time. And they wanted Jesus to fit into the mold 
of what they thought of as king, savior, and deliverer. And up to this point, Jesus had had somewhat sidestepped all their attempts. He often avoided crowds. You remember that? He he often told people, hey, don't don't mention this to anybody. Uh, In in Matthew 9, he, he healed two men that were blind, and then he says, and he opened their eyes, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. Just keep this between you and me. And for the most part, Jesus' ministry was Galilean-based. It, it was up north. It was not down south. And even his own brothers said, what are you doing? This isn't how you go about this. John 7, earlier in this, in this book, uh, John chapter 7, it says, So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. His disciples, his brothers at least, didn't, didn't appreciate that. They said, no, 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 Jesus, come on. You've got some great teaching, you do some incredible signs, but you're, you're in Mount Pleasant, Iowa. Come on, you need to go to New York, you need to go to L.A. Do something, nobody's going to hear about you here. And he would respond by saying, my time has not yet come. Well, now his time had come, and now is the time to reveal himself. So he is allowing these people to shout out these savior, deliverer, and kingly uh, words. They were, he was allowing them to call him the king of Israel, because of course he was. But not exactly the kind of king that they had been expecting. And look at verse 14. So Jesus sat on a young donkey and was riding it into Jerusalem. Now this was done to fulfill Zechariah's prophecy. Uh, Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This is from Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah was a post-exilic prophet. So after Israel had gone into exile, Babylonian exile, and returned after seven years, uh, this is when Zechariah brought his prophetic ministry along with Haggai. You remember these two guys? So they were, they were proclaiming uh, God's word to the people of God after they had come back from exile. And if you remember that timeline, they came back, but mm, just wasn't going as well as they'd hoped. They, they came back to, to rebuild the temple, and they started, but then they, they kind of faltered, and they never finished it, and the foundation lay there, and they got distracted. They, they were met with opposition. You know, at different times, people came against them and tried to get the, the work to stop on the wall in the temple. And they just weren't seeing the full restoration that they had, they had hoped for. They, they had hoped for something pretty powerful, but when that did not materialize... They were discouraged, and they wondered, is God with us or not? And so then we have the word of Zechariah, and we have the word of Haggai, and they come, and their message is, God is with you. Get busy. Start rebuilding the temple. Start, start doing the things you, you should be doing as God's faithful people. And the message was this, restoration is indeed coming to Israel. There's going to be a judgment on our enemies, there's going to be peace in Judah, and God will send his king and that's where we have Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Zechariah's message several hundred years earlier from, from Palm Sunday was saying, it's coming. Get, get busy. Start doing the things that God has called you to do. Rebuild that temple. Start, start bringing the sacrifices. Do that. But just know, I am with you. That day is coming. That king that you're looking for, he's coming. He's coming. 
So the people were hungry for their messianic king to come and restore and rule, and they wanted God to work powerfully. They wanted him to show up and restore them to this favored status where they were a a force to be reckoned with in in the ancient Near East. They wanted that that, that united kingdom under David and Solomon. They wanted that, that, that rule to happen again. They were hungry for it. So Jesus is Israel's king. He is the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, but he did not come to be a military general leading his troops into battle. Jesus is not going to uh, go up against the Roman legions in, in full battle armor. That's not the kind of king that he came to be. A donkey was symbolic of peace. So Jesus riding in a donkey signaled a mission and an agenda that was peaceful, not something else. If he were a military war commander, he would have ridden on a, ridden in on a war horse, some kind of big, powerful steed that was snorting and pawing the ground and all decked out in armor and everything, or at least a chariot being, being pulled with some armor and, and decorations, followed by all the soldiers marching in step. That, that's what a military political leader, kingly type of guy that they wanted what it looked like. Instead, he came on a donkey, which was often re- reserved for uh, merchants and, and priests and, and people that came in peace. So a very different mission. He was not the type of king that the crowds were expecting. The only blood that this conqueror would shed would be his own. So neither the, the crowds nor his disciples grasped the full nature of his kingship. Uh, the, the crowd obviously confused uh, verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So even they were confused on the mission and exactly what all this meant. They were, there was some confusion there. And then verse 17 and 18, crowd comments. We're back to the crowds. The crowd that had witnessed Lazarus' resurrection kept talking about it. They were the ones bearing witness This is what they were excited about. They were excited about the sign that Jesus had performed, the raising of a dead man. Pretty impressive. And and they were talking about it. But they were also excited about the possibility of what Jesus might do next in terms of this kingly savior, deliverer that they expected. Uh, Verse 18 tells us plainly, this, this is why the crowds were there. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they heard that he had done the sign. Okay, that's why. They were following the signs. So both sets of crowds, the one that had had witnessed the the raising of Lazarus in Bethany and the crowd that had made pilgrimage to Jerusalem and heard Jesus was coming and went out to meet him, both both crowds are there because of what he was doing. Both crowds are there because of the raising of Lazarus, they want to hear some more about it, and what he might do next as this kingly savior deliverer. They had high expectations. I mean, if this guy can raise the dead, uh, he might be able to, to pull off, you know, the overthrow of Rome. Right? He could be our next Joshua. He, he, could, he, could, he could ride in front of the troops, and with him in charge, with, along with the supernatural divine power and, and outstretched arm of God, we're going to be unbeatable. This is it. This is our guy. We, we might even be able to get back in the first place position around here.
all scatter before us with Jesus in the lead. Finally, verse 19, Pharisee frustration. The Pharisees are Jewish leaders, part of the Sanhedrin, the 70-member council that ran Jerusalem. Uh, They said, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has has gone after him. This is the frustration being expressed by the Pharisees. They're saying, look, whatever you're doing, it's not working. This this isn't happening. If you're going to kill him, okay, let's move up that timeline. Whatever. It's getting worse. They are switching allegiances from us to him, and we can't have that. If this keeps going, we're going to lose our first place position around here. That's what their concern was. They were frustrated. Well, this is the triumphal entry, John's account, and we need to make some observations. This is what we see. Number one, the Jewish leaders expressed outright opposition to Jesus and wanted to kill him. I think we all caught that, right? But it needs to be underscored. The Jewish leaders expressed outright opposition to Jesus and wanted to kill him. They knew he had raised Lazarus from the dead. They knew that, but they didn't care. They were confronted with a supernatural miracle, a sign that could only be done by someone uh, from God, designed to point to the the validity of of Jesus and his claims. In fact, that's what Jesus said. Remember, part of the, the, the crowd's retelling or bearing witness would have definitely included what he said as he stood by the tomb. Yeah, I remember him saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Yeah, he said that. Jesus raising Lazarus, remember, was so that they would believe. He tells us this. John 11, 42, just on the immediate page turn back from where we're at right now. John 11, 42. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. That's why he did it. He wanted people to believe. It was for belief. And the chief priests and the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders responded by saying... I don't care. Let's kill him. It does not matter what he does. I I refuse to believe in him. It does not matter what I see. It does not matter what the facts are or what the truth is. I'm not going to believe him. Kill him and kill Lazarus too. Let's just get rid of both of these guys. We can bury them and then we can spin this however we want. But it was outright rejection. This is not confusion. This is outright rejection. This is willful denial, ignoring facts, truth, evidence. It's completely irrational. It'd be like saying, okay, here's an apple. What is this? A banana. Or here's a dog. What is that? It's a cat. Or here's a man. What is that? That's a woman. It's completely irrational. It doesn't work. It's willful denial, outright rejection. Number two, what else do we see? We see the crowds were confused over the true identity and mission of Jesus. They were following him because of his miraculous signs and their nationalistic messianic expectations, both of those reasons. That's what verse 18 says. That's why they were following him. He had raised Lazarus because he had done that sign. But they were also drawn to Jesus because of his power and his ability to possibly accomplish what they saw as the Savior, Deliverer, King. They were drawn to Jesus by his power and wonders, but they wanted to kind of fill in the blanks regarding specifically what kind of Savior he was going to be. It's kind of like a, it was kind of like a Mad Libs game. Remember these? It's a tablet, and you open it up, and there's short stories, 
and someone's writing, and someone, everybody else shouts out words, and there are blanks. So you say, give me a noun, give me a verb, give me an adjective. And then after it's all done, he reads this, you know, the, the person reads the story back, and it's usually kind of humorous because we don't know what the story is. Well, that's kind of what they were doing. When they saw Jesus, they, they, they saw him and they said, okay, Jesus is the blank and the blank that we were hoping for. Jesus was the military and political leader we were hoping for when they really should have said Jesus is the holy and righteous one we were looking for. They were just kind of filling in their own blanks. They were confused. They saw what they wanted to see in Jesus. They wanted to put Jesus in a box of their own construction, but they were confused. And then finally, number three, even the disciples did not fully grasp what was happening in the moment. It was not until after the resurrection that they fully grasped everything everything that was happening, but not at the triumphal entry. So that's what we see. We see outright rejection, and we see confusion. Those are the, the two things. We see irrational denial and misunderstanding. Now today, we see Palm Sunday a little differently than, than they did. Uh, we see it different than the eyewitnesses. We see it different than, than those who were there. We see it post-cross, post-resurrection, post-Pentecost, post-onset uh, of New Testament church. We see it with the complete written record of scripture before us. We see it with 2,000 years of, of church history proclaiming the identity of Jesus and the nature of his mission. So the confusion is gone. The, as far as God is concerned and his revelation to us, there should be no confusion about Jesus. And it was gone immediately after the resurrection. Look at, this is from Luke 24. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. That's pretty straightforward. That, that contains no ambiguity. That, that is direct revelation on, on what's, what's happening, who Jesus is and what the mission is. By the time we get to Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts 2, he's proclaiming Jesus as the Christ, as the, as the ultimate Davidic king. He's pulling in Old Testament scripture passages to buttress his argument that Jesus was, was uh, killed, crucified, and he rose again according to the definite plan of God. I mean, the confusion's gone very quickly after the resurrection. In fact, the entire New Testament unpacks in detail who Jesus is and what God has done through him. So what does this mean? At the beginning I said, we, so, okay, yes, we see it differently, the confusion's gone. What are the implications? What, what does this mean for us today? The confusion's gone. That means there's no mystery over who Jesus is why he was crucified. We know he's not a military leader sent to restore ethnic Israel as a power in the ancient Near East. I, I, we understand that. That's not it. We do know he is fully man and fully God and will be so forever. We know he was sinless, yet he willingly went to the cross to make atonement for the sins of his people. We know he took the wrath of God upon himself for our sin and he died a real physical death, rose on the third day, ascended to heaven where he rules and reigns over his kingdom, and he is coming again soon. We know that he's given his church the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations, all people groups. That's what that means. 
So the confusion is gone. And I would say this, the confusion is gone to such a degree that even some of the children that came in this morning and walked through waving the palm branches, they have a better grasp over Jesus' identity and what his mission was than the original eyewitnesses on Palm Sunday. How's that for clarity? Yeah. I know some of them do. I know some of them have a, have a clearer grasp of who Jesus is and his mission. So the confusion is gone, which means what? It means there's only two places to land when it comes to Jesus. Before we had outright rejection and confusion, but now, on this side of the cross, we have outright rejection and repentance and belief. Those are really the only two options. That's the implication, that's the difference. Believing and following Jesus or outright rejection of Jesus. All in or irrational denial. Bend the knee or turn up the nose. Hail him or hate him. Belief or belligerence. Rejection or repentance. Those are the only options. There's no confusion. No more mistaken identity. Not knowing who he is. No more claims of ignorance. We can either believe in Jesus Christ, put our faith in him, join ourselves to his body, the church, live fully surrendered lives to Christ and his word, uh, take part in the, in the fellowship of the church, Lord's Day, sacraments, word, prayer, uh, continue our sanctification process and making our calling election sure. It's either that, or we can take the route of the Pharisees and say, I don't care. I, it does not matter who Jesus is or what he did. I refuse to believe in him. It doesn't matter what I see. It does not matter what the facts are. The truth is, I'm not going to believe in him. Might as well look at an apple and say, that's a banana. Because those are our choices. If you're here this morning, it is by divine appointment. It's not an accident that you're here this morning. And I want to speak to those in Christ and those not in Christ. First, those in Christ. Rejoice and be glad that God has called you to himself and has given you the gift of faith. Rejoice and be glad. Praise him for forgiving your sins and declaring you righteous in his sight. But don't stop there. Don't stop there. Jesus, when teaching his disciples and, and sharing with them the meaning of some of his parables, he said this in Matthew 13. He said, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. How much more so today with the complete record of God's revelation to us. We have everything at our fingertips. And God has given us the spiritual sight to see. God has given you, as a believer of Jesus Christ, spiritual sight and spiritual hearing. So... There are no more books to be added to the canon of Scripture. All that's going to be revealed has been revealed. So I want to challenge you to identify some other area of your faith that you confess that's not clear. Just pick something. Start, start with, the, with something that you've always thought, you know what, I, I, never, I never really knew what that was about. And then chase it down. Or, or the next time you've got the Bible open, you run across something, you're like, well, I'm not sure what that means. Instead of just glossing over it and then moving on to the next reading the next day, say, you know what, I'm going to find out exactly what that's talking about. Keep digging. 
until you understand it and the confusion is gone. And don't be surprised that in the process of tracking down these answers, you find more questions that, that are attracted to you. And you find more things that's like, oh yeah, I also want to know that. And, and it, so it builds upon, it kind of snowballs like that. And as you participate in this process, you are learning more and more about the nature and character of God, which means the relationship between you and your Savior can only go deeper. Can only go deeper. So I would challenge those in Christ to remove confusion about the faith they profess. For those not in Christ, if there's anyone here this morning that, that for whatever reason is, is here but not in Christ, responding to Jesus Christ is the most important decision you can ever make in your life. It's more important than choosing your occupation. It's more important than choosing your spouse, which is very important. It's infinitely more important than that. How do you respond to the person of Jesus Christ? Belief or outright rejection? And before anyone lets themselves off the hook by saying, well, I, I haven't outright rejected Jesus, so I must be okay. Remaining indifferent to Jesus is the same as outright rejection. A verbal confession or, or saying a prayer or asking for forgiveness without heart change is the same as outright rejection. Jesus said you must be born again. Let's put it this way. You, you cannot manage your relationship with Jesus on your own terms. He will have none of that. He won't put up with it. it, it it's not possible. You can't come to Christ and say, but, but, it, but I'm coming the way I want to. I'm going to keep a lid on this area and this area. And I'll do this, but I won't, I won't do that. That doesn't work. Multiple times Jesus talked about salvation with narrow language, the narrow gate, the narrow door. Luke 13, 24, it says, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Strive, meaning to, to, to compete, as in a, an athletic contest or in warfare, to, to make every effort, to, to leave everything out on the field. Strive to contend for a prize, to struggle or fight. Many will seek to enter, meaning they're trying, and will not be able, meaning they will fail. That's, that's kind of scary. They'll try to enter the door, but they will not be able to. The reason they are not able to enter is because they're trying to enter on their own terms. They're trying to manage their relationship with Jesus. They try to enter through their own righteousness or through their own imagined criteria of what salvation uh, needs to happen for salvation or from trying to be a morally upright person. Through empty words, Jesus is the narrow door and we enter by faith and it's only possible through a work of God. You must be born again. This means a fundamental change, a reshaping of of the whole person around the Lordship of Jesus Christ. There, there will be a brokenness over sin. It, it's not just a, I'm going through the motion I said the sinner's prayer. There, there is a brokenness over sin. Making a tearful plea to God to have mercy on you because you have sinned before Him. Understanding the radical depth and totality of your sinful status 
There'll be spiritual desires that were not there before. There'll be a love for the brothers and sisters in, in the church that wasn't there before. That's what scripture teaches. There will be a love for God's word welcoming its authority over their life, not instead of you know, managing it. So I, I say all this because I don't want anyone to think that as long as they're not taking the Lord's name in vain or, or as long as they're not verbally uttering curses against Jesus, that they're, that they're somehow okay. Indifference is rejection. Taking a neutral stance towards Jesus is rejection. Claiming to be a follower of Jesus Christ while living your life according to your own terms is rejection. Today is the day to enter the narrow door through repentance in Jesus Christ. Because, as Jesus taught, when once the master of the house rises and closes the door, it's too late. There was a man who uh, did not grow up in the church. He had, no, he had no teaching, he had no background in Christianity. And he just was an unbeliever. And he you know, went through life, he got, he got married, he had kids, all the while unbeliever. And everybody around him described him as a good guy. They thought he was a good guy. He was a good neighbor, good friend, good employee. And then it was around the time where he started to see his grandchildren being born, he thought, you know what, maybe I should start to give some more thought to this whole religious stuff. So he began seeking. He, he began asking people who he knew who thought were believers. He said, what do you think happens when you die? And he would listen. He would say, okay. He began to listen to Christian radio once in a while. And some of the stuff, some of the music he liked, some of it he didn't like. Some of the things they said didn't really make a lot of sense. Some of the things were like, okay, I guess I could see that. And he started to warm up to it. He said, maybe I, should, maybe I should read the Bible. And so he picked up and he did one of these things. He, he took the Bible and he put his finger in it. He just opened it. And that's where he started. And it didn't really make a whole lot of sense to him. He'd like start in the middle of Isaiah or something. It just didn't make sense. He didn't see how it applied. I mean, how is that relevant to my life? And he even went to church and he heard the gospel. But he thought, you know, I'll give that some thought. And then he died. And the reason this is so tragic is because he was seeking. He was taking steps. He was approaching the cross. But he never pulled the trigger. He never repented and believed. And so he died in unbelief. Believe upon Jesus Christ and be saved. Don't walk. Run to the nearest open door that is Jesus Christ. Because the confusion is gone and there are only two responses. Turn to him today. Repent and believe and your sins will be forgiven. And then join yourself to his body, the church, and start serving the king. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you praise and thanks for the revelation that you've given us. We give you thanks for your Holy Spirit, which illuminates our, our eyes and opens our ears. Lord, there is no confusion over, over who Jesus is regarding in terms of, of what you've declared to us in your word. We know he is the Son of God, the sent one, the Messiah, the Savior, the Deliverer. And we know in what way he is these things. He is the Holy and Righteous One. He is the one who went to the cross to take our sin 
the penalty for our sin on himself. And he issues a general call to all people. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that has not answered that call, that they would believe upon Jesus Christ. They would pull the trigger. They wouldn't put it off. And Father, for those of us who are in Christ, would you give us the desire to continue to grow in our faith? Give us the desire to continue to uncover your revelation, your truth to us. To, to not be content with, with standing confusion regarding the faith that we profess. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.